0: Revelation chapter 7. I guess I, I the notes are always there. I, if I forget to send you the notes, you can let me know. Um, but the notes really do help um, in just keeping, keeping up, especially when I mention other Bible verses. I try and put all of the Bible verses in there as much as I can. Sometimes I don't. It just depends on what I'm talking about. But Revelation chapter 7, continuing on. Verse number 1 says, and after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. Now, I, I want to preference before we get into this, uh, we started off chapter 6 and the seven seals, right? They were they were going through this whole thing about how there were seven seals or, or seven scrolls, and. And uh, there was no one that could open them. And uh, John was pretty much crying because no one could open the seals. But obviously, the Lamb of God can open the seals. Jesus, who paid his his uh, life's blood for our, for our debt, um, can open the seals. He's got all power. So um, there was victory in that. And so he opened six seals in the last chapter. And then chapter 7 kind of leaves off with not opening the seventh seal. There's still one more seal. (laughs) So it kind of just skips over it. But verse two, it says, and I saw another angel ascending from the earth, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea saying, hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and they were sealed a hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Asher were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of uh, Neph- Neph- uh, Nephtalium were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Manassas were sealed twelve thousand of the tribe of Simeon were sealed twelve thousand of the tribe of Levi were sealed twelve thousand of the tribe of uh, Issachar were sealed twelve thousand of the tribe of Zebulun were twelve were sealed twelve thousand of the tribe of Joseph were sealed twelve thousand and uh, of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed twelve thousand. Verse 9, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations, and kindreds, and people, and tongues, stood before the throne, and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in the hands. Melody. Melody. Let's stop that, please. And cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes." This is why we don't have Bible studies at home because <laughs> everything sucks. Did you see what she just did to me? Yeah, I did. And melody is like, I don't even I know what she's doing. What she doing. She's cocking I know, I, in a baby I, I, voice. I'm like, what is going on? What She knows we're, we're reading right now. I don't understand. Anyway, uh, any questions before we dive in to this extravagant chapter seven? Which seems real confusing. So, if you have questions, now is probably the best time to to ask them, unless you think of something while we're going through it. Sorry, I'm reading. I don't have any questions. Okay. Uh, We don't often think of Revelation as a book of hope, Um, but just as any other book in the Bible, the main theme of even the end of the world as we know it is Jesus Christ. In Colossians uh, chapter one and verse eighteen, it says, "And he is the head of the body, the church. Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence." That word "preeminence" uh, comes from a Greek word called uh, "proteuo," which means to to be the first or um, to hold the first place. In other words, Christ should be the first thing we all think of. Or, or come to the conclusion of in everything we think or do or say. If he is not in the forefront, you're doing two things wrong. Number one, you're breaking God's first commandment of the ten mentioned in Exodus 20. Um, would you like to read Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 through 3 for me, please? Should be in your notes. Thou shalt have that one. Mm-hmm. Thou shalt thou have no other gods before me. Is that it? Oh they didn't put two? Oh okay, well, you know, I don't know what I put on those things. I don't pay attention at the time I mean that's the most important part anyway. <laughs> so so if you don't have God in the forefront, you're breaking the first commandments, not you're not you're putting other things before God. God should be the first. Period. He should be at the forefront. And obviously, God wants to be the only one we rely on, not to make up some version of God, but, but to rely on his righteousness and his promises and his movement, even if we don't think it's okay or right. He knows what's best. That's what it means to have him as preeminent. Number two, we're also making it impossible for us to do the right thing when we don't have Christ first. In John 15:5, Jesus says, I am the vine, You are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Even going to your Bible for answers and and learning anything you possibly can from from God's word will be impossible without him. Uh, This book of the Bible, Revelation, will make absolutely no sense if we don't have Christ as the preeminence to it. No book of the Bible will make sense without him for he is God's word. In John 1:14 he says and the word was made flesh, God's word was made flesh and dwelt among us, lived with us. And we beheld we saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten, the only son of the father full of grace and truth, full of it. And he is the reason the Bible even exists in the first place. As John 1, 1 through 3 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Without Jesus, nothing was could be made. Nothing could even exist. Nothing could even matter. It doesn't even have a purpose in this universe if Jesus is not real, if he does not exist. God's Word is powerful, but it's all, it's all meant for the knowledge in our relationship that every human being needs in Jesus Christ. Hebrews four twelve gives gives the account for the word of God is quick and it's powerful and and sharper than any two edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. And as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, it could tell you exactly what you really desire, even though you may not know. You may you could even lie about it. You can say, well, you know, I don't I don't like to lie. But the word of God says that every human being likes to lie. They do it, and they do it on purpose. They have a choice. They don't need to lie, yet every person does it. To lie, not to, not to hurt well, I mean, first of all, you wouldn't have that moral dilemma if you didn't believe that Jesus Christ was real, because you wouldn't care. Lying didn't matter. No, you, no, you would. You would lie without without even thinking about that. Because you don't have a moral dilemma. You don't know that lying's bad. You don't care if lying's bad. So you'll lie to anybody you want to as long as you want to because you don't care. You can't tell me that you've never lived your entire life without just purposely lying to people. No, that's what I'm saying. That's what I said. So, what if you're lying? You're not supposed to lie. What if you lie, not to lie? You don't know. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you don't know you're not supposed to lie. That's my point. Oh. <laughs> if, you do need Jesus, don't know, if you do know Jesus Christ, then you have a moral dilemma to lie or not lie. But that's my point. I'm not talking about people that know Jesus Christ. I'm talking about people that don't know Jesus Christ. They don't have a moral dilemma to not lie because they don't know Jesus Christ. They don't care. They're living in their sins gladly. Get out of here. You guys are dumb. My goodness. These dogs, I swear. This is going to be the last time I do this. I'll tell you that much. Anyway. Where was I at? What was I talking about? Uh, That had nothing to do with anything. I I don't know where I was at. But as we'll see in these coming chapters, especially and not limited to this one, we will understand the necessity for these things that are about to take place and why they should take place and why Christ must have the preeminence. He must have the middle ground. He must have the forefront, even during a time of great tribulation, which will be exceedingly great. It will be catastrophic and life-changing but verse number one says and after these things i saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth holding the four winds of the earth and that the wind should not blow on the earth nor on the sea nor on any tree um i won't get too deep into the symbolism here of this but um i mean it is a pretty obvious picture of what is happening four angels four corners of the earth holding back the wind there's no there's no wind at all after the six seals have been broken Seemingly taking a step back from the previous chapter, uh, take a pause here from opening up the final seal. And when we think of the wind, especially living in, in the Antelope Valley, where, where we live, uh, which could be considered the Windy City, and not unlike Chicago, which is called the Windy City for... I don't know why. It, it's not windy there. I mean, it, it's breezy. But it's called the Windy Cindy, City for some weird reason. I, I think the Antelope Valley is far more windy than, than Chicago. That's not the point. But when we think of the wind, we don't think of peace and calmness though god can show himself mighty in the wind and he can prove himself as as strong through wind we don't like we don't look to the wind to show god's peace we don't we don't be like oh god's peace is knocking over that tree right there look at look at those those houses flying (laughs) into the sunset because of god's peace no we don't that's that's never we we usually see wind as, as something terrible and something we don't want to even be around in fact the wind usually brought terrible trials throughout the bible and was the last place you wanted to find yourself when you're trying to relax in matthew chapter 8 verse 26 through 27 we see the disciples in a uh in a bit of a trial a crisis as they're on the sea and um a wind comes and makes the waves almost destroy their ship and matthew 26 it says and he saith unto them jesus why are ye faith why are you fearful O ye of little faith then he rose and rebuked the winds in the sea, stopped it from happening, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds in the sea obey him? They were amazed by the fact that it was just calm. First Kings chapter 19 verses 11 through 13, and he saith, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains, and break it in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And it was so, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went on and stood in the entering in of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? God shows all these things happening around Elijah, but God's not in any of those things. He's not any of these these loud, obnoxious uh, trials that are falling apart around Elijah. The Lord is just a still, small voice, and sometimes that still, small voice can be um, uh, shut up or quieted by all of the loudness that's happening around us. We sometimes are so distracted by what is in front of us rather than listening to the still, small voice. And here we see the angels stopping the wind or or holding back the winds of the earth. My assumption is they're allowing a short window of calmness and stillness before breaking that last seal, which we will mention in the next chapter. And we'll mention more about that particular thing in a minute. Verse number two says, And I saw another angel ascending from the east. Having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea. The power to harm earth and sea, as, as this verse dictates, is not quite understood yet because that hasn't come to fruition. They haven't hurt the earth and the sea yet. Uh, we're going to see like a fourth part of the earth and the fourth part of the, the water be completely destroyed. Uh, destroyed or tampered with to the point where it's not even drinkable it's not even livable Uh, but that that's it that's to come later on i don't want to spoil anything so far the unfolding of the seals that we have experienced in the last chapter have all been a part of what god foreknows he already saw all of this coming but is not specifically caused and i want to say this i want to say this with with a um (coughs) uh with the clarity because i don't want people to think get the wrong idea (laughs) I'm not saying that God cannot control the end times. What I'm saying is God allows these things to happen on purpose. Uh, And I'm not saying that he's not specifically forcing the end times to happen either. But I am saying that he is not causing the destruction. Not yet anyway. That again will come, uh, though all things are allowed by God. These things that took place in this last chapter, in chapter 6, aside from the sky rolling back, um, the island and the mountains being removed, uh, the great earthquakes taking place, and the moon becoming red, oh, and and the stars falling, and the sun going black. They took place because of the world's sinful desire. Everything else took place because of the world's sinful desire to have more than what they deserve. And they're willing to do whatever it takes to get it, including murder and stealing. Because again... As we've already mentioned before, without Jesus Christ, we have no more obligation to lying, for instance, or murder or stealing. We just think it's okay. As long as we get ahead of everyone else, we can do whatever we want. The angels are held back here from destroying the earth or from, from causing harm to the earth because God is allowing another chance for salvation, which I'll get into in a minute. Verse number three says, saying, hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. There's still some who are able to be saved. I take into consideration that this may not be quite the beginning of the tribulation as we will come to know it. I believe that this might be the beginning, but I consider that this this might not be the actual beginning. Um, There has not been a rapture as of yet that was mentioned. Um, that or that we've read about, but we understand that there's supposed to be one. In in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17, it says, Then we, which are alive and remain, those that are still here on earth, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Um, there are some things that I think need to take place before that happens. There's obviously uh, a lot of people that believe that there's going to be a a pre-tribulation rapture which means that you're going to be raptured up before all of these events take place um and then there's some people that that believe in a post-tribulation rapture which means you're going to experience all of these events and then you'll be taken up with the lord i I have (laughs) i have evidence for both uh if we're talking about post-tribulation rapture, we think of Matthew chapter 24, verse 29, where Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And I want you to take note here, that's what exactly what we read about in chapter 6, for those first six seals, which gives me reason to believe that seventh seal might mean the rapture, but I also have reason to believe that it's before, but we continue. Um, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Four winds, again, dictating what we just read about in chapter 7 in regards to the angels stopping the four winds. Jesus says that he's going to come down, the trumpets are going to sound, and that's when we're going to be gathered together. Jesus has not come down yet in anything we've read about in Revelation so far. And there's been six seals that have broken. We've already experienced somewhat of what the tribulation is going to be. So there's good reason to believe that right now is not quite the time for us to be raptured. However, I do have proof that Of a pre-tribulation rapture as well, and I'll get to that in a minute. I'm going to save that though. Mark thirteen twenty-three or thirty-two says, "But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the son, but the father." So, in a post-tribulation rapture, there's assumptions that we won't be raptured up until Jesus returns. Jesus doesn't return in Revelation until chapter what? I don't have notes for this because I, you know, I didn't come prepared for this. I didn't expect to talk about this particular thing. Uh, 17? No. 20? 20. No. Is it 20? Yes. It's either 19 or 20, I think. Is when uh, Jesus comes, and there's only 22 chapters in this this whole book of Revelation. So, if Jesus comes in the last part of the tribulation or after the tribulation, according to Paul, uh, and according to um, Matthew as well, we will be, uh, or according to Jesus in the book of Matthew, we will be raptured up after the tribulation. But again, if we read Mark 13:20 or 32, we have this promise. But of that day, which Jesus says, and that hour. Meaning that that did the day of the, the tribulation and, and the 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 day of our rapture knoweth no man, know not the angels which are in heaven, neither the son, but the father. I almost insinuate insinuating, and and I don't know if this if uh, there's probably more logistical explanations about this, but he's almost saying here that he doesn't even know when that's going to happen. Only only the God the Father knows. And it, God, Jesus being God, you would think that that would make a lot of sense that all three of them would know the Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Word, Jesus, and the flesh, the Son of, of God, would all have unity in knowing everything. But um, I'm not going to get too deep into that because I believe that, that even Jesus didn't have all power until... Uh, until just before or just after his uh, resurrection because he says it he says all power has been given unto me um, but I'm I'm not going to I'm not going to get too deep into that either because I do believe that Jesus is, was 100% God and 100% man at birth he wasn't he didn't just gain power godly power but I believe that that there was a specific course for Jesus to uh, uh, kind of uh prove his power so to speak because he came to die for our sins and now that he died for our sins and he's risen again he's now able to to show his his god head he's able to show his his power Um, but my guess is in order to line this up as biblically as possible if we are experiencing a pre-tribulation rapture we would have been taken up before the first seal in this verse and the ones we will read in a moment, we see that God has stopped the last seal from being broken and is now sealing the servants of God on their foreheads. This this seal is promised to everyone who conquers the trials by faith. We read this in, in Revelation chapter three and verse twelve. It says, "Him that overcometh, will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go uh, no more out. And I will write upon his upon him, upon him the name of my God." And the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. While God may be breaking seals to prepare the way for judgment, he is finalizing the the seal of the Holy Spirit over those that turn to him before the great tribulation is to happen. And not only so, but also showing it forth with the seal pressed upon their foreheads. In, In the Old Testament, the proven seal of the children of Israel from God was through circumcision. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 11, it says, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet been being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also, for even those that are not circumcised. So the Old Testament, the Jewish law or the Jewish tradition was to be circumcised to show you are in God's righteousness you are sealed by god that was god's covenant to abraham um but for us living in the church age from the new testament era we are sealed with the holy spirit in ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 through 14 it says in whom he also trusted After that you believed the word of truth, after you believed in what Jesus said and and believing God's word on the matter of him dying and raising from the dead for you, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest uh, of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory." So for those, but for those in in the times during the tribulation, so before the Old Testament you're sealed by circumcision, New Testament you're sealed by the Holy Spirit, but for those in the times of the tribulation after the church age, they are provenly sealed on their foreheads, so as not to mistake in who they are, and I believe there's a purpose for that, which we'll get into in the later um, chapters, but uh, they they I assume they're staying on earth. Whether or not they're staying on earth is not quite understood, but my guess is they more than likely are going to be staying on earth, those that are sealed, 144,000 that it points out here. Um, those that are sealed will be the only one to answer the question that chapter 6 left in verse 17, which says, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? All of these people were seeing the things that god was doing either seeing the final judgments and they're asking who's going to be able to, to to take this who's going to be able to stand who's going to be able to protect us who's going to be able to to do the right thing during this time and the truth of the matter is it's these these that have been sealed with the with the name of god on their foreheads they will provenly stand for god will keep his children standing even though there is great pain and trouble. In John chapter 6 and verse 27, it says, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. Those that are sealed are able to stand. In Ephesians 6, 13, even better, Paul says, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. Paul says, you're the only ones that can stand. You're the only ones that have the truth. You're the only ones that are going to be able to to go through this trial and continue to be the only one standing. Everyone else is going to fall and everyone else is going to fail and everyone else is probably going to ruin everything else. They'll be the cause of it but the Christian can stand. In fact, sometimes it will seem that the child of God, those that have been sealed by God, will often stand alone. I'm sure we've all ex- experienced it at some point or another. We, we just feel alone. We feel like we're the only ones doing anything right. Everyone else seems to be doing everything completely wrong and we're doing something right. And then people are get upset because we're the only ones doing anything right. And they're like, why don't you just join us? Why are you being different? Why are you being awkward? Um, but we stand alone because we understand that Christ has the preeminence. He has the forefront. He is the reason that we're even alive. He's the reason we have heaven. Anything we do without him will be a waste of our time. We understand this. Everything we do with him will multiply. And we understand this. And John Bunyan said, What God says is best is best, though all the men in the world are against it. Uh, John Bunyan, of all people, has, I think, the best understanding of this, seeing as he was in prison for literally standing for his faith. What he says is best Obviously, was best for John Bunyan, even though he ended up in prison for a good portion of his life. But he still continued to write for God, and he still continued to preach even after he got out of prison. Writing one of the most best-selling books of the entire world, aside from the Bible, second best-selling book, The Pilgrim's Progress. If you've never gotten a chance to read John Bunyan's work, uh, I highly suggest The Pilgrim's Progress or uh, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. It's fantastic. It's about his um, testimony about how he was saved and how long it took him to be saved. But I find it hard that there are many in the church today, if faced with real godly burdens, even such as like John Bunyan had to face, I I would find it hard for them to stand. Not because they're too weary to stand, but because they were never really sealed by God's spirit to begin with. Verse number four. It says, and I heard the number of them which were sealed and there were sealed a hundred and forty and four thousand That's a hundred and forty four thousand. In case you don't understand old English of all the tribes of the children of Israel, this is where it gets dicey for some scholars. I'm not going to pretend like I know everything about this, but I'm going to give some um, subtle details about what I do know. And then you can, you can kind of draw your own conclusion, your own lines from this point. But, um, I'll give you the most prominent things, I think, to, to understand this. This is where things get a little weird. But the Bible is specific about the amount of people who are sealed, 144,000. And from what lineage they were sealed from, the sons of Israel, it says. They go even further to implicate that those sons of Israel will be from very specific tribes, 12 tribes to be exact. And it gives a list through uh, verses 5 through 8. It says the tribe of Judah, uh, the tribe of Reuben, the, the tribe of Gad, the tribe of Asher, the tribe of uh, Naphtali, uh, Naphtalium, the tribe of Manassas, the tribe of uh, Simeon, the tribe of Levi, the, so on and so forth. You, you get the, the picture. And there's a list there, and you can write out the list, and it's probably easier to have that list if you write it out linear like that. Um, and count them yourself. There's 12. Uh, We understand that the Old Testament split the people of Israel up into 12 different and specific tribes who were the sons of Jacob. Jacob had 12 children, in case you didn't know that either. However, it is assumed, and, and rightfully so, that these are not the same 12 tribes from the sons of Jacob because Dan is taken out and Manasseh is included. They also can't be the tribes that were inherited land in Canaan because Dan is left out Levi the the priestly tribe is included and Joseph is listed instead of his son Ephraim those are the original tribes not only so but the tribes of Gad Asher and Ephthali would assume that because these children were the children of concubines that those who were only or once excluded from privilege they they didn't they weren't part of the the leadership of the tribes of 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 the original Israel because they were excluded because they were part of the children of the concubines, the seemingly small role in the world, but now they're included here in this list. Almost as if to say that no matter your background or where you come from, salvation belongs to the Lord, and he alone gets to save whom he pleases. With that said, this doesn't mean that these tribes are not specific to our day and age, though they probably won't be, more than likely. I I do have to make the assumption that these tribes are more of a reference to the fact that God will save whoever calls upon his name. Whether they are specifically from these tribes is is not completely well understood, and there's a lot of argument between scholars about if these tribes are are literal or if they're taken out of um, just assumption or a presumption of what is to come. Uh, we do know that there were twelve tribes, indicating the twelve lineages from Jacob. Deuteronomy chapter twenty-seven gives the list. These shall stand upon Mount Gerizim uh, to bless the people. When ye are come over Jordan, Simeon, and Levi, and Judah, and Issachar, and Joseph, and Benjamin, and these shall stand upon Mount Ebal to curse, Reuben, Gad, and Asher, and Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And again, you can read through that list versus what list they give here from verses 5 to 8 on your own time. We understand that those 12 tribes were responsible for the growth and population of much of the world. And we understand that through this lineage, specifically Judah, the lineage of the Messiah, that Jesus Christ would be born. We know that God saved his people, specifically Israel, whenever they needed him and looked to him. In Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14, God says it himself, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin And will heal their land. If they would just turn to me, I will will listen. That's all they need to do is just turn to me. It's basically what God is saying. But we also understand that Jesus chose 12 specific people to be his disciples too. In Luke chapter 6 and verses 13 through 16, it says, When it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose 12, whom also he named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, And Andrew, his brother, James, and John, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, called Zelotus, and Judas, the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. Aside from seven, as we've mentioned multiple times throughout multiple chapters, 12 was another number that God used quite often to show completeness. I see it like this. God uses seven to show his completeness. Like... How God rests on the seventh day, Genesis 2:1, but God also commands that we rest on the seventh day as well, so that we can be closer to Him, Exodus chapter 20, verses 9 through 11. Or like how Jesus gives us seven specific examples of who he is, the bread of life, John 6.35, the light of the world, John 8.12, the, the gate of salvation, John 10.9, the good shepherd, John 10.11, the resurrection and the life, John 11.25-26, through 26. the way, the truth, and the life, John 14.6, and the vine, John 15.5. That's seven different examples of who Jesus is. Or the fact that God makes mention through our faith being tried seven times in Psalms chapter 12 and verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth purified seven times. When it has to do with spiritual matters, we understand that he is very specific about the number seven when it shows his completeness. Think of of more personal and obvious experiences that you can experience today. Like the rainbow has seven colors. Our fear God shirts have only seven letters in it. It's a great representation of of uh fearing god by the way if you want to purchase one of those interesting um it also has the colors of the rainbow that's seven colors um i didn't make that up that's just i i honestly i found that out later on i didn't know um that that was how many letters were in fear god and how many colors were in the rainbow but or even when when peter asked jesus um how many times we should forgive someone he says, should we forgive them seven times? And Jesus says, tells him not seven times, but 70 times. Seven in Matthew uh, chapter 18. It says, and Peter came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him till seven times. And Jesus said unto him, I say not unto these until seven times, but until 70 times seven. And not specifically meaning that we should only forgive someone 70 times seven times. But continuously never stop forgiving in fact don't even keep count it's not worth counting your your forgiveness but god mentioned seven churches in revelation he's mentioned seven seals which will be spoken about more in the next chapter Um, there will be seven trumpets from seven angels that will be also revealed in the next chapter plus the seven bowls of wrath which have not been mentioned yet Uh, we talked about the seven candlesticks and the seven angels of those self-same seven churches i think we get the point god Shows his perfectness or perfection through seven. But 12, I believe, ascribes to our perfection. We've already mentioned the 12 tribes of Judah, then the 12 disciples, both of which are human instruments of perfection. Judah being the perfect amount of tribes for the amount of people they had to look over. 12 disciples being the perfect amount of disciples to start the church with, even though one was a, was a devil. But without him, we wouldn't have the church like we do today. We look at the 12 new tribes in Revelation, and from each tribe was 12,000 people. Again, if you read through verses 5 through 8, it says from each tribe was 12,000 persons all adding up to 144,000. the new jerusalem will have 12 gates made of pearl with the names of israel's 12 tribes also not to mention the units that that each gate and wall will be measured by increments of 12 uh we could go on and on but the point is god uses 12 to signify perfect perfectness to to us where he uses seven to signify his perfectness um, it helps us. It helps give us a better understanding of His holiness and, and our dependency. The point of all of this is to say that we don't necessarily have to give significance to all numbers in the Bible. I know I just went down this whole rant about seven and every part of seven and every part of twelve, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I know a lot of people like to open up Revelation and they like to to nitpick everything apart until because everything has to have a meaning seven has to symbolize something, 12 has to symbolize something, 144,000 has to symbolize something, 12,000 from each tribe has to symbolize something. It doesn't matter. There are some numbers that should be reported and taken literally, like the measuring of heaven, for instance. Whether that is a literal measurement or not, we'll get into that in later chapters, we'll never know. We won't know until we get there (laughs) when we measure it ourselves, if we even care that much. But others... That should not be taken quite as seriously like the number of colors in the rainbow or, or how many times we should forgive somebody just doesn't matter. There, there's some there's some things, some numbers in the Bible we don't have to worry about. This accumulation of 144,000 doesn't have to necessarily mean 144,000, but an estimate to how many people were seemingly saved. During that time, we, 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 it, when we take the number 144,000 and we subtract it to the amount of people currently living on earth, that's 7.753 billion people, we don't even see the amount of people dent those that are not sealed by God. 144,000 out of 7.753 billion, we would, we would never know. We would never see. That's a small fraction compared to how many people are alive. That in of itself should make us all terribly miserable. And that's that's after a rapture for those of us who assume there will be one before the tribulation. Which brings me back to that again. For we are saved from the wrath to come. Paul promises this in Romans chapter 5, 9. He says, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We don't have to worry about what the tribulation may may capture. Even, even if we experience the tribulation. We still don't have to worry about it. But I do believe that because we don't know, not even Jesus himself, he says the Son doesn't even know, but the Father only knows because we don't know, there's no reason for us to worry about it. Whether we experience the tribulation or don't experience the tribulation shouldn't matter to our faith. In fact, the tribulation will prove whether or not we are of faith. Because if we can't face the tribulation and we automatically just start hating God, we're just like everybody else in the world. In which case, wouldn't have mattered anyway. Even if there was a pre-tribulation rapture because you weren't really saved. There will still be a lot of people left on earth, though. And we'll see that in the coming chapters. But it's not all hopeless and lost. In verse 9 through 10, it says, After this I beheld and lo... A great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. This is a beautiful sight, and too many to number, worshiping, all from different nations in different languages, singing the same praises to God. Someone said, there's three things that will surprise you in heaven. Number one, people will be there that you didn't think would be. Number two, people who won't be there that you thought would be. And number three, that you'll be there. But I'd like to add a fourth one. I think something else that will surprise us is everyone worshiping in unison for the first time ever. Knowing that his time has come to put a stop to the suffering this world continuously offers its people. In verses 11 and 12, it says, And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God. In verse 12, Saying Amen, blessing and glory, glory and wisdom, and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever, Amen. Every creation will worship God, including His angels. It says, "Why at this moment are they worshiping, though?" What was it that God did to cause them to worship like this once again? I believe it's because He saved the last of them. These are the last. The hundred and forty-four thousand are the last ones to be saved. Luke 15:10 says likewise, I say unto you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. And now all of heaven is rejoicing over the 144,000. This is it. These are the final saved from the earth and not because God would have them be the last because second peter 3 9 says the lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness but is long suffering to us word not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance One hundred and forty four thousand people are being saved during this tribulation time and i believe it's it's not because that was it that was all that god could reach i believe it's because the rest of the earth didn't care I believe it will be the last one saved because God knows no one else, even though they will have multiple chances. Even after this, we'll see God give them chance still to be saved, but no one will turn to the Lord. Some have said that no one will have a chance to be saved after this, but I don't believe that's true. Um, they have said that the rapture was their last chance, but as we will see through these these chapters to come, God prolongs these trials and judgments for a specific reason, and I believe it's the same reason he prolongs his return from the, from the earth. I believe it's just for more chances. Verses 13 through 14 says, And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? In verse 14, I laugh when I read this, And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest, And he said to me, These are they which came out of a great tribulation, and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I I read I laugh when I read this, because the elder asks John, Who are these people in the white robes? and and how did they get here? And John simply replies, You know, as if to say, Well, of course, I know, but I I just want to make sure that you know. So why don't you say it first, and I'll let you know if you're correct. (laughs) You tell me first. (laughs) You know. You know. Of course, the elder gives him the answer. But they are those who have been saved after a great tribulation, he says. Think of this for a second. Does this not line up to what I have said before? They, they, They more than likely die during the time of judgment, which those who are saved today are currently saved from. But they trusted in Christ during the tribulation. They fought in the war of Armageddon. They were killed for their faith. Their clothes were bloodied. Their scars were numerous. Their burdens were probably heavy. But the blood of the Lamb washes away all of these. That's what he says in verse 14. He says, They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That last part. First John one seven says, "But if we walk in the light, sees in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin." Acts chapter twenty verse twenty eight. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which He hath purchased with his own blood. Ephesians 1, 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Jesus Christ's blood cleanses even the most hardest-pressed of people. I've known many men who have suffered from PTSD, maybe fought in wars, even for our own military. They faced battle. They more than likely saw their friends die. They may have even had to kill people. And they can't escape those scenes. They can't stop thinking about what they had to experience and what they had to do to people they didn't even know. But Christ can lift that burden. He has had to witness the death of his saints for years. He has seen people scorn him and and mock him. He saw his friends be killed. Every one of them, every single disciple, disciple martyred for their faith, aside from John, But that was because he had to write this book here so we can read it today. He knows the pain and burdens of this world better than any of us, I think, realize. He experienced all the same trials and troubles we experience today. He has not left us alone, nor will he ever do so. Which leads us to verse 15 through 17. It says, Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb, which is in the midst of the throne, shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. When we have run our course, we find shelter with God. We may continue to live on in paradise, but it will never be burdensome again. He gives us shelter, he keeps us warm, he never, ha- we never have to hunger or thirst, and we will never shed one more tear, he says. And it's all because they kept Christ preeminent. Philippians 3.13 says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus." Luke chapter 9, verse 62, And Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow, and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. In Genesis nineteen seventeen it says, And it came to pass when they had brought them forth abroad, and he said, Escape for thy life, look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain, escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. How is our walk? Are we keeping him preeminent? Even during the difficult seasons of our life, Would we be able to live through such a time like this mentioned here in his word? Would our robes be bloodied from from standing on our faith and convictions? Or would they be bloodied from our war with those of the faith? Do we keep him preeminent? Any questions, comments, concerns, or complaints?